This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello and welcome to The Bunker, the podcast where we uncover the sinister side of technology. I am your host, Andrew Harrison, and my guest, Dr. Stephanie Hare, author of the provocative book, Technology is Not Neutral. In her book, Dr. Hare reveals how increasingly powerful algorithms and AI are starting to shape our world in ways we never thought possible. Are we handing over big decisions in our lives to artificial intelligence? Dr. Hare's research will make you question everything you thought you knew about technology. Join us as we look at the dangers of a world controlled by algorithms and AI in The Bunker with Dr. Stephanie Hare. Now, this is the real Andrew. You might have guessed that wasn't me. It wasn't even the Just Eat advert. The language generator ChatGTP wrote that introduction. And then my words were spoken by Descript, an audio editing software system which, among other things, can ingest your speaking voice and then output text that sounds roughly like you. So it's bad news for me and all podcast hosts. We're all out of a job. Should we fear these things? Can we trust technology to run our lives? Will we even know when it's doing so? And in a world where mid-journey can create the art and then OpenAI can write the review, is there any space left for human creativity? The real Dr. Stephanie Hare is with me. Hello, Dr. Stephanie. But how do you know I'm the real Dr. Hare? That's the real question. Well, that's what I was asking myself. I don't know. Should we do a quick Voigtkampf? You're in the desert and you see a turtle on its back. What do you do? <laughs> no, she's exactly, failed. Exactly. So what, what did you make of that weird little intro that we created? It, it's slightly sensationalist. This is very lurid. Uh, your book isn't really a Terminator nightmare, but what did you think of it? I think that I still prefer the human voice that's happening live or, you know, a recording of a human voice that's a live person as opposed to any sort of simulation that's being taken from recordings of your voice that are then mashed through a program. I think there's still something about... I guess it's the life force or whatever yeah. it is that makes us a living creature that we who have grown up with this would always be able to differentiate. But maybe if you grow up in a completely digital world, maybe you wouldn't be able to. Yeah, I, I have a horrible fear that actual humans are going to start speaking in that kind of stilted. Maybe they do. The fact that chat GTP still kind of writes like a child with an essay crisis on Wikipedia, you know, it sort of just ingests these facts. It gives me hope that perhaps humans are not completely replaceable. But obviously it is going to get they, these things are going to get better at what they do. Do we want to sort of go into a world where. You know, it's AIs interviewing other AIs. You know, will will people become accustomed to that, do you think? Well, I mean, I think that's the real concern is sort of what's the end game with all of this. You know, a great example would be when you're applying for a job and they often ask you to not just give a, a, a curriculum vitae, a resume, but also a covering letter. But the point of a 
covering letter and CV is it used to go to a human who would assess your application. Now, most of that's being read by AIs, which will be looking for certain key words or phrases. So do you need to write a covering letter, which used to be about, you know, a test to see if you can write and express yourself and give a flavor of your personality if it's being read by a machine anyways, in which case it's a machine applying for a job if you decided to have you know, an AI tool write your covering letter, and then a machine that's going to be deciding whether or not to call you to interview. And then you'll go be interviewed, and a lot of those will be over you know, video, and they're using all sorts of AI software to read your voice and your face and your body language, and again, to score you. So at what point will it be humans talking to humans again? Because mm. we're already in this world where we've stripped a lot of that away. And also it strips away the kind of indefinable thing in those not just interviews, any social situation where, you know, it's not just about measuring things on scales of variables. It's the kind of, it's the intuition, it's the vibe. It's the, can I stand to spend time with this person every single day? Which, you know, is AI ever going to be able to do that? I don't know. Well, I mean, that's the thing. And it, it's just reducing everything to zeros and ones, you know, binary. Do I, do I like this person or not? Are they going to be good at this job or not? Without any way of really testing if these things are any better than a human being at removing bias or selecting for talent and the like. And you're right so much about, you know, attraction when people are dating, the kind of chemistry that happens when people become really good friends, the kind of people that you're going to do really good work with. It's, it's a sort of person to person thing that you only kind of know sometimes when you've actually been working with them for a while or spending time with them for a while. So this idea that somehow it's better or more objective is already really problematic. And second, we might be really losing something that we've evolved over you know, thousands of years to be able to read each other in, in really important ways. And that's been stripped away from this process. Well, your book, Technology is Not Neutral, is subtitled A Short Guide to Technology Ethics. The idea that like, we're perhaps not getting to grips with the kind of moral and the ethical challenges of, of all these these things that we're kind of heedlessly bringing into our societies. On that question of work, are we properly dealing with the ethics of making people in vast industries redundant and leaving them with nothing to do? Again, I think it's more that there's just going to be a period of flux. Certain tasks are going to be phased out. And I think it's also the speed at which certain tasks are being phased out. Others, people maybe are not going to accept that and they're going to fight. So for instance, anyone that's creating images or art will be following very closely a lawsuit that's being filed on behalf of Getty Images, because loads of people have spent a lot of time creating their photography and paintings and the like, and they have an intellectual property claim to that. There's a copyright question. So right now, a lot of these AI technology tools have just trained you know, on massive data sets that are just taken from the public. Well, you can't necessarily do that. Like those, some of those things are copyrighted. But because this technology has evolved so quickly, we don't really know what the legal standing fall of this is. So we need a couple of, you know, landmark legal cases to really set the direction. So I think it's more just that we're going to see some stuff go. We're going to see some new stuff happen. Some people are going to make a lot of money. Some people are going to be on the losing end of the trade. And a lot of it's going to be fought over. This is nothing new. Like this is the sort of history of human evolution. So we're in the middle of the online harms bill making its way through Parliament at the moment, and the government is concentrating enormously on issues of bullying, of the promotion of self-harm, racism, harassment, all the things that we kind of see right up in our faces on social media 
all the time. But government often concentrates on things that maybe are not the, the biggest picture. What would a tech ethics czar Stephanie Hare be promoting if she were in government right now? Oh, gosh, where to start? I mean, I think I would probably be going for quick wins and like achievable steps. So one of the things that we have known in this country for years, I mean, at least going back to 2012 and probably earlier, to be honest, is that our use of biometrics technologies, that's anything to do with your body, like facial recognition technology is obviously training off of images of people's faces, but you can also use voice, DNA, fingerprints and the like. We know and by we, I mean the top data regulators in this country, the Science and Technology Committee in the House of Commons, pretty much every human rights and civil liberties group and all of the academics have all said to Parliament, to the Home Office and to the police, facial recognition technology is really problematic and our existing inf- uh, legal framework is not fit for purpose. We need to update it. Yet here we are in 2023 and there's no sign of Parliament taking any action. I mean, they have just absolutely failed, frankly, to do their jobs. And there's, I'm sure, all sorts of reasons for that, but the point still stands. What this means is police forces are using this tool. Private companies are using this tool. They're often keeping their own databases and sharing it with the police. It's a massive problem if you care about things like privacy and civil liberties, but also security. You don't want people getting wrongfully arrested because they've been misidentified by this tech. So I think I'd be going after stuff that is like a known problem. And the solutions are very clear. And we could have a really nice public debate about it with experts testifying in the House of Commons to kind of educate the public about the risks and the opportunities, and then come up with something that we can all agree on, put it into law, and then everybody's at least got clarity. Because right now it's a mess. Like it's illegal in Scotland, it's not being used by the police, but it's being used all the time by the London Met. Like what's up with that? It's the same tech, right? So (laughs) I would be focusing on stuff I think that's quite clear. I think for things like policing the internet and protecting children, that is far, far thornier. And I'd be working with our colleagues in the European Union on that quite closely because they set the gold standard in privacy and data protection that really ends up being enforced around the world. So there's not really a huge point, I think, in the UK diverging too much from what our partners across the English Channel are doing, frankly. Hmm. I'm just thinking the idea of Britain collaborating with people across the English Channel at the moment seems fanciful, but it's a, it's a nice ask. I wanted to ask you, I mean, we've all seen the Chinese social credit model, the extremely intrusive system where a totalitarian government can use big data to monitor everything you do, everything you buy, sell and say, and everywhere you go for a kind of total information awareness and control situation. Facial recognition is a part of that. You know, are, are these social credit schemes kind of inevitable in less robust democracies than ours and maybe even in democracies like ours? Well, I don't know about inevitable because I think there's always there's always a choice and there's also just drift. right? So, hmm. you know, there's a human inertia in a lot of systems. But I think we have to already kind of look at certain things in the face and go a lot of that already exists in liberal democracies. So if you want to go and check out your credit score, for instance, and see how all of your financial behaviors and you know, whether or not you vote, you, know, you want to go get a mortgage, you'll be kind of stunned to see what is already knowable about you and the decision making that's happening, decide to, you know, whether or not to give you a mortgage or whether or not to give you a loan is already depending quite a lot on your sort of record, not just financially, but existentially as a citizen. So, you know, we name it and put the label totalitarian in China for different reasons because it's used in different ways in China. But I think the tools and the thinking behind it already exist 
to a certain extent within liberal democracies, they're just expressed differently and used differently. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. It's part of the problem in, in identifying the kind of pros and cons of this kind of tech. Not just sort of, you know, social monitoring, but you know, social media and, and everything that's seeped into our lives, that this stuff is overwhelmingly a private sector initiative. Okay, it's built on the public funded internet, but it's, you know, it, it, its policies and the way in which it holds data tends to be supranational. And it's governed by, it's kind of seen through the prism of profit and share value and market share, rather than democratic oversight within the borders of a, of a country or a, or a federation of countries. Well, it's a good question. I mean, the private sector still has choices to make. So certain companies will decide not to work with certain governments or not to roll out certain types of technology within a jurisdiction. Other companies try to claim that they're neutral and they're going to, you know, basically just obey the law of whatever country in which they operate and otherwise sell to anyone. So I think it's just that's kind of why I titled my book, like Technology is Not Neutral. Technology is always being created by people, and you have to ask, you know, by whom? Already that group's not neutral. For people, you know, who's the client or who's the customer? And then, you know, it's being launched into a context. So the same technology in one country is going to be experienced really differently in another country, potentially, because the context is different. Yeah, I mean, we, we read a lot about how the methods and also the algorithms of Facebook which in Western countries had fostered, uh, you know, kind of sharing of baby pictures and, you know, what, you know, what's your aunt and your uncle up to when applied to other countries had sort of suddenly ignited firestorms of racial violence and, and Facebook's sort of indifference towards this and sort of lack of understanding of it and the lack of oversight from any, any democratic monitoring body just let these things run out of control, didn't it? Yeah. And the question, I guess, then is like, who should be having that oversight and control? So, you know, Facebook was obviously and is still facing a legal case right now about its role in the genocide of the Rohingya people in Myanmar. So that's a case that's going to have to take you know, years, I'm sure, to resolve. Now, they have their own groups on trust and safety, as does Google and many of the other social media companies. But what government body is monitoring that. And like, would anyone have confidence in a government body that's monitoring it? Do you want it to be a supranational body like the United Nations, for instance, or, you know, somebody that's like looking at genocide, war crimes, et cetera, in The Hague. So it's that question of like, who is the trusted interlocutor for these types of risk? Because do you trust Facebook, for instance, to be marking its own homework effectively? Well, I think one thing we can be certain of is no, we don't, because right. we've seen them over and over again simply right. apply fig leaves shaped like Nick Clegg to their behavior. Yes. And you have to ask yourself the honest question is like, if not them, then who would you trust? Mm. Lots of people don't trust the UN. 
lots of people, you know, have problems with the EU uh, or would have problems with the national government. Different governments are going to have different views on this. Human beings, again, often can't agree on like what topping to put on a pizza. So now we're, you know, now we're talking about how to implement ethics at scale, at a global scale, and like what is a crime. So it, it's it's messy. Well, the traditional response is, well, you the first thing you do is you break it up. You kind of you, mm. you break up Facebook under antitrust in the US or under EU competition laws and you break it into units that are small uh, and small enough for for governments to be able to, to, to be able to handle. But isn't it the case that, the, you know, the essence of big tech is it only works at global scale? There's no point in having, you know, a face. There's no point in having a Facebook for Lancashire. Do you know what I mean? It's got to yes. be global or it doesn't work. Well, this is it. And yet, and yet, we see Facebook having to comply with very different laws, for instance, in Germany, around hate speech, that would not be a requirement in, for instance, the United States, where we have the First Amendment that's protecting freedom of expression. Mm -hmm. So it's still Facebook, it's the same technology, but certain things cannot be done in Germany that can be done outside of Germany, because they have to respect German law, mm. even on something like speech. And those are two liberal democracy examples. Mm -hmm. I realise I've been kind of exposed to my own biases in this conversation because we've talked almost exclusively about information technology, about mm. social media, about generative AI and stuff like that. I want to look a little bit further ahead, maybe to some kind of more concrete tech like, you know, self-driving trucks and, mm. you know, banks that make your decision for you off their own bat. These things are going to become increasingly important and what's going to be behind them will be, you know, algorithms up to AI level thinking machines. If they're going to be so integrated into our lives and so important, are we going to have to start thinking of them as moral actors? Well, I think for me, at least, it's always coming down to who can be held accountable and that, like, potentially who can be held liable, e.g. who can I sue, right? Yeah. So you want to always, always step back from the, the product, the tool, the service and look at the people and the institution, for instance, the company, but it could be also you know, a government, an NGO, whatever, that creates it. There's always a human behind it. And I think once you get that really locked into your head, and that's really important as a designer or a technologist as well, if you know that the product or service that you make and put out into the world could eventually land you in court, you're going to design it differently. Whereas if you were like, oh, I, I do this and I put it out there and then there's this diffuse chain of responsibility, you know, everybody's responsible. So in fact, no one's responsible. <laughs> you're going to, you're going to design and create differently. So hmm. I think it's, you know, just because you've built a self-driving car doesn't mean that the engineers behind it or the company behind it can't be taken to court. But wouldn't the response of the CEO of that company be, well, I didn't actually simply build the self-driving car. I built an algorithm which began to build itself. I built an artificial intelligence, which in many respects modifies and redesigns itself. And I kind of set the ball rolling, but fundamentally it evolves and has something that you could call a life of its own. And therefore, it is responsible for it, what it does. This is where we need to have algorithmic audits. So you need transparency of how an algorithm works and what data is going into it and what, you know, what again, what choices you make. Like algorithms are not magic, right? They're like, they're like a recipe. They're a set of instructions. Someone created them. And yes, they can start to then, you know, act upon themselves. But you should always be having human oversight that at any point, can look at that and be like, oh God, it's <laughs> mm -hmm. it's doing this. Rather than that, we need to modulate. Mm. Humans modulate and design all the time. So you want transparency into what does that look like? 
You want explainability, which is why is it doing what it's doing? And then you want accountability, which is whose job was it to check that didn't happen? And that's the thing is like a lot of companies will say, we can't provide that kind of algorithmic accountability because this is intellectual property. We want to keep this to ourselves. To which my response would be, well, if you're putting something that's out in the public domain that could lead to injury or loss of life, that's not a good enough answer. But particularly if we're talking about stuff for the public sector, so if you're using algorithms that are deciding, for instance, healthcare, you know, who gets to be seen by a doctor first, or you know, where you fit on the operation uh, or cancer treatment queue, mm. that's, that might be being generated algorithmically. Public sector algorithms by law should probably be accountable and transparent. And like, we'll have to have an entire sector of people. You know, we're talking about people losing jobs. Now we can talk about the creation of jobs. There's going to be all these technologists and lawyers and regulators out there who will be scaling up to be able to do precisely this kind of work to make sure that algorithms are working as intended and that we can all have trust and confidence in them. I think I read Bill Gates somewhere saying that he thought that robots and AIs should pay income tax because they are not only generating wealth, they're also taking a job off a human who would be paying income tax. And that when you have wealth generators in society, you tax them because that's how you run a society. From that follows, on the basis of no taxation without representation, <laughs> that you kind of take in robots and AIs into the kind of realm of, of personhood, aren't you? Do you think, firstly, do you think robots should pay tax? If a robot takes my job, should it pay the tax that I would have paid? But this is the thing is when we talk about this thing of they're taking away a job, that's like a, a way of looking at jobs as like a zero sum game, right? Like, you know, there's only a finite amount of jobs. These robots are taking, you know, 60% of the existing jobs and therefore people are just going to be out of work. That's never how it works. And I know if we can think about this, you know, we're talking about this here in the United Kingdom. So let's use this as an example. There were all sorts of jobs in shipping and in mining that were shut down during the Thatcher government. And we're now, what, 40 years out mm. from that? And some of those communities have still not recovered because there is an acknowledgement and a role, I think, about if you're going to shut down entire industries and like put communities out of work, at that point, does business, does government have a role to help reskill people and invest in communities so that they can make transitions to other jobs? That is a really valid discussion. And that's probably the discussion we should be having. It isn't that the jobs don't exist. It's how do you help somebody go from one sector to another or one job to another? It might still even be within the same industry, but they're just going to do a different role in that industry. How are you supporting people through change? Some countries are much better than that than others. And some regions and cities will have, you know, initiatives for that that we can learn from and, and draw sort of confidence and inspiration from. So I don't, I don't know, <laughs> this is taking us away from the fundamental question mm. of should we tax robots and therefore taxation without representation? Great <laughs> question. I think I would probably err right now on the side of let's not tax them, um, mainly just because I think already democracy is going through a tough time and I'm not sure how I feel about like therefore representing them, <laughs> giving them rights. Uh, we need to, I think we need to think that thought through, but I'm intrigued by it. So I would say I'm holding, it's a maybe, but we need to do more work first. So just to wrap it up, I mean, the real big one, and I know this is insane to try and cover it in just one question, but the big one hanging in the future is general AI, general artificial intelligence, which doesn't just perform one task. It is it is the true thinking machine of science fiction. 
and uh, when it arrives, it will change everything. I think it was only yesterday a Commons committee was being warned that uh, AI could well kill all the humans in the style of Bender in Futurama. How far off is, is general AI and should we worry at that level about uh, it coming into conflict with our species? Right. So the answer is, I think no one knows. Again, like, I know everybody wants certainty. Like if I could say to you that we're going to have general AI within 10 months to like start freaking out and preparing your bunkers now or like get ready to like surrender to your robot overlord. At least you'd have like, it's a terrible scenario, maybe. Um, there will always be somebody who collaborates, by the way, and makes money off of this and probably marries their AI. So <laughs> for some people, this is great news. But the point is, like, you want the certainty, and I'm here to tell you that I can't give it to you. I have no idea. It's a highly debated topic that has been for decades. And, you know, people make all sorts of predictions, and then they're never held to account when they get their prediction wrong. So I'm on the side of we don't know yet. Uh, if you look at like Professor Stuart Russell, he did the Wraith Lectures on the BBC a couple of years ago. So they're still available online. Um, and they're wonderful. And he sort of talks us through that like certain AIs are really good at like one task, but getting an AI that could do like all of the tasks, right? Which is what we're talking about when we're talking about general artificial intelligence, that is a lot harder. So it can, do, it can do one thing really well. And then it's like comically ridiculous when you try to give it another challenge. So great that you're really good at playing chess, but you know, what else can you do? Probably very little. So I'm more relaxed on that. What I think is more interesting is the way that we keep framing this entire discussion as like a, a question of loss of control and the future of humanity. And that must be, you know, I was joking about saying trust our species, but you're right. Within history, we have entire you know, decades, if not centuries, if not millennia of people vying for power. And that often means subjugating other people and committing all sorts of atrocities and abuses. So I think Ultimately, your question surfaces a deep fear that humans have of the machines taking control and being more powerful than us and us losing agency. And will we be able to fight that back? Will we be able to work with them in partnership, et cetera, right? So like, that's more the question is like, why are we so scared? What are we scared of specifically? And therefore, how can we use the fears constructively to say, how are, do we, how are we going to build more ethical technologies and tools? How do we have to train our humans, both you know, consumers and users of technology, but also the people who fund it and build it and create it to think with ethics at the forefront at every stage from idea to you know, releasing something into the, into the wild? I have a feeling that this may be something we return to. And I hope that Dr. Stephanie Hare, if it is you, I hope you'll come back and join <laughs> us again sometime. My robot avatar would be delighted to accept your invitation. Fantastic. <laughs> Technology is not neutral is available now from an algorithm field bookstore near you. Um, at Podmasters, we guarantee that our podcasts are 100% human made and created using neither artificial nor natural intelligence. If you want to help fund this tiny band of humans as they hold out against the machine onslaught, please do consider backing us on Patreon. You'll be helping to pay for editors, scriptwriters, researchers and more. Join the campaign for real podcasts by searching Patreon Bunker Podcasts right now. Thanks for listening, and we now return you to The Matrix. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Andrew Harrison. 
The producers were Alex Reese and Jet Gerbertson and the assistant producer was Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with music and audio production by Jade Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison and the marketing manager is Gina Richard. Artwork by James Perrett. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Or is it?